0: We're going to start tonight uh, with a bit of light entertainment. Um, please, let's, uh, let's watch this uh, clip. Good stuff, eh? In 1998, Turkmen Bashi, known as the father of all Turkmen, built an arch. You might have seen it there on the clip. And he, on it, he placed a 39-foot uh, gold-plated revolving statue of himself right at the pinnacle. The statue was designed to rotate so that the great leader's face would always be facing the sun. And Turkmenbashi Bashi is just one in a line of many leaders in history who have constructed statues in honor of themselves, to contrive praise and glory so that, so that those they rule over have to worship them. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel as another example. You see, since the time of at least the Egyptian pharaohs, dictators have understood the power of using images of themselves to feed a cult of personality connected with their name. Self-obsession has led them uh, to use propaganda to magnify their greatness, to promote their fame, and to subjugate their people under them. You may have recently seen um, how Kim Jong-un climbed the highest mountain uh, in North Korea, and um, if it's on the screens, hopefully... Um, probably, yeah, there we go. It's, uh, he, he, apparently he climbed 2,750 metres uh, and all this in his smartest black outfit um, from the appearance of things. What a guy. Um, or you might have also heard how his father, uh, the late Kim Jong-il, uh, when he first time he played golf, he scored a record-breaking 38, which included uh, 11 holes in one. After that, satisfied with his performance, Kim Jong-il reportedly immediately declared his retirement from the sport. There was no need to play anymore. Well, because here now we're distant from such self-promotion, either in the proximity of time or space, we're able to take a bit of a step back and we're able to see uh, these vain efforts in the cold light of day. They don't actually seem very glorious, do they? In fact, they seem rather ridiculous. So it's really interesting that in the four verses from Ephesians that uh, we've had read, um, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, I think it's on page 1178. If you could open it, that would be really helpful. Because the Apostle Paul twice claims that God works everything for the praise of his own glory. Indeed, one well-known Christian leader uh, speaking on this passage says, the most basic fact you can say about the righteousness of God is that he has an unwavering commitment to his own glory. You see, it's, it's impossible to read the Bible and not come away with an impression that God is concerned for his own glory. So can the same criticism that we might lay at some of these uh, rulers that we've been thinking about, these self-absorbed dictates of history, also be levelled at God? Is God a bit of an egomaniac? Well, a simple rebuff of this idea is to say that if God were not glorious, then he'd be a pretty pathetic God. There's a big difference between the eternal God, who Christians believe speaks, and created comes into existence, and the ruler who speaks, and people obey their commands for a cosmically short period of time. But I want us to go deeper than this, because if you cast your eyes back to verse 10, you'll see that God's plan for the entire course of history is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Christ. Only when all people are unified under the banner of Jesus Christ, will God's glory be fully realised? And there's a huge difference between the way self-obsessed rulers of history seek glory, controlling people under their banner of fear, or by using uh, rallies or towering statues of themselves, and the way God unites using our praise. And this is what we're going to look at now. We're going to see that God deserves the glory of our praise because he includes us in Christ, because God unifies us in Christ, and because God redeems us in Christ. So let's start with God includes us in Christ. In verses 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul begins by speaking about how we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And Paul's use of the word we means he's not talking about the Ephesians to whom his letter is addressed. He's actually speaking to those like him who first had the promises of God, to the Jews who grew up believing that one day God would save Israel, that Jesus, uh, the Christ, was going to be their Messiah. You see, God first included the Jews in Christ. You remember way back in the book of Genesis how God first promised to bless Abraham and his offspring with a purpose that all peoples on the earth might be blessed through them. Well, God gave Abraham and his descendants a covenant of circumcision as a mark that they belonged to God. In doing this, God was carving out um, a special people for himself who the Bible describes were God's portion. They were chosen not through any merit of themselves, but through grace. And then, having been chosen by God, under Moses' leadership, the people of Israel were called to banish false idols away from them because, as one unified community, they were to represent God's image themselves here on earth. They were called to live differently, to love justice and mercy, so that others would be attracted towards them. The surrounding nations were supposed to look on Israel with awe and say, wow, surely the one true God is with them. Yet time and time again, Israel fell short of God's standards. And Moses, hearing from God, prophesied that one day another prophet will be raised up from within Israel's people who would speak God's words once again to them. The promise that God would send his Messiah in the Hebrew language or Greek in Paul's day was what shaped and propelled Jews forward in their faith for generations to come. And then at last, in the days of the Apostle Paul, all the weight of centuries of Jewish expectation was fulfilled in Jesus when he came. In Jesus, God vindicated the Jews for keeping the hope of the Messiah alive. And now the witness of each Jew who remained faithful to the promise of Christ brought glory to God. On a smaller scale, perhaps it's a bit like a dedicated teacher who patiently supports a child's growth all the way through school. They invest all their energy into helping the child to reach their full potential. And then when the final exam results come out and the child succeeds, it's all been worth it for the teacher. Their efforts have been rewarded And it's brought glory to the school they work for. Well, for the Jews who believed Jesus was God's Christ, even whilst other nations were ridiculing them, it had been worth holding out. So now with renewed confidence, the message of God's salvation in Jesus is ready to go out. That all peoples on earth might once again be blessed through them. And therefore, at the start of verse 13, we see Paul switches from the word we to the word you to show that God also includes the Gentiles in Christ. The word Gentiles just means those who are not of Jewish origin, like the Ephesians Paul was writing to. The Ephesians were originally strangers to God's promises in Christ. And as it says later in chapter 2, they were without hope. But everything changed when they heard the message, the good news of Jesus, and they believed. When they heard the message that God broadcasts about himself, they were included in the hope of Christ. When they heard that God loved them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for their sins on the cross, they were granted access into a relationship with God that previously only the Jews had understood. They might have been late entrants into the knowledge of God's blessing, but their reward was exactly the same as the Jews. Eternal life with God. And it's the same for us today. We need to hear how God woos us in Christ to be caught up in his salvation plan. When Jesus uh, stepped into the world, he became God's divine imprint on the earth. It was like Jesus became God's selfie, pixelated down into an image that we could comprehend and get our heads round. But humanity couldn't cope with the purity of Jesus' image on earth, so we destroyed him on a cross. But this cross is where we see God's glory maximally revealed. The cross is where we see how God chooses to glorify himself, not through aggression or coercive power, but through sacrifice, which reveals God's love for all mankind. So, unlike a dictator, God never forces his love upon anyone, even though his desire is that all people should be saved. Instead, God wants to give all people the chance to hear what he's done and make their own response. That's why elsewhere, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When you speak of your love for Jesus, you bring glory to God by including others in God's great plan. Many of us here um, were present here yesterday during the wedding of Charles and Abby, the new Mr. and Mrs. Evans. And it was a really wonderful occasion. The whole marriage service spoke of their love for God and their trust and hope in him. And that's why even the churchgo- uh, non-churchgoers after the service couldn't help but comment how wonderful, and how glorious an occasion it was, how beautiful it was. You see, they were delighted to be included and caught up in that occasion too. But how can we have confidence that we're inviting people when we share the good news of Jesus into a relationship with God that's worth being included in? Or if you're here perhaps exploring whether it's worth trusting in Jesus, what grounds are there for believing that God will deliver on his plans? Because if we just pause and take a a step back for a moment and think of human authorities, it's the elections coming up on Thursday. And over a succession of years, we've grown accustomed to those we invite to govern us, letting us down. They've either made serious moral mistakes, or they've just uh, gone and looked after their own self-interests. These days, it's hard to know which politicians we can trust. And then even if the party we do vote for on Thursday wins the right to govern, how do we know that they're going to deliver on their manifesto promises – especially when it looks like they're going to have to form a coalition government with parties who have opposing aims. As a society, society we've learned to distrust those, unfortunately, with authority over us. So how can we be sure that God will remain faithful, that he will look after us and deliver on his unifying plan? Well, we see this in verses 13 and 14. We see God deserves the glory of our praise because he unifies us in Christ. My second point. If circumcision was the sign uh, of the community of Jews who belonged the, to the old covenants, then the Holy Spirit is the sign God gives the community to all the new community of believers under the new co- covenants. Now we can imagine, can't we, that in the days that the early church was getting going, The Jewish believers in Jesus would have struggled to accept that the Gentile believers were rather part part of the club. How could they be entitled to the same privileged status that the Jews enjoyed before God? After all, the weight of the entire sweep of history was with the Jews. For centuries, they'd known they were God's chosen people. Why would God suddenly choose to let others in? But likewise for the Ephesians on the opposite side of the coin, On what grounds of assurance could they stand confident that now they had full access to the same promises of God? Some serious proof was going to be needed if God was going to unite all the believers together under one roof. Well, this is why the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians that all believers are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit just as it prophesies in the Old Testament book of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And you may recall in Acts 10, it was the power of the Holy Spirit falling on the family of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, that convinced the Jewish apostle Peter that Gentiles should also be allowed into the name of Jesus Christ. And this is why... Paul assures the Ephesian believers that they've been marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't want anybody to be able to rob the Ephesians of their peace. Now this word seal that the Apostle Paul uses, it's got many positive meanings. In the Bible, uh, Jesus is described as having the seal of God's approval. In this sense, a seal is a mark of authenticity. Now, happily, I got paid uh, a few days ago, and so I actually have a £10 note on me. And um, you can see that the £10 note has the, the Queen's head on it. Along with several other intricate features, this is the, uh, uh, a sign that I can be fully assured that this £10 note is the genuine article, the real deal. Its value is true, and it's not a fake. This has a seal of authenticity, the type of seal that the Apostle Paul was talking about. But a seal is also a mark of ownership, a bit like cattle might be branded on a farm. And then finally, a seal offers security, just like in the olden days, or if you've got extremely rich friends who are sometimes sending you letters, then uh, they might put some wax on it, just to seal it to make it look good. Well, if the seal is broken, then it's a sign that the contents of the letter have been tampered with, And the reader needs to be aware. So by God marking the Ephesians with the seal of the Holy Spirit, God is saying that he knows them. They have his stamp of authenticity on them. They are his own. And that all the security they now need can be found in him. And around the world, God's Holy Spirit, the seal of it, is But work today, unifying people who have little in common, but bringing them together with a common desire to share the love of Christ. That's why we recently supported one of our 1115 congregation members, Denise Pavey, to go out to Kuala Lumpur as part of a Pan-Asian conference. Here, uh, she worked to help bring 50 delegates from uh, around Asia together. They represented 24 countries across five continents, uh, who between them spoke over 26 languages. And together they were responsible for leading 50,000 disciples. The power of God's Spirit to unify people is simply amazing. What does this seal of the Holy Spirit mean for us here today, though? Well, it means that we are all connected to the wider body of Christ. I mean, it's regardless of your ethnicity, your age, your earnings, your marital status, your state of health, your personality, or even how unworthy you feel before God. If you're a believer in Jesus, because Jesus died for you, God has declared that you, like those sat next to you and near you in Christ, are all of eternal value for him. Now, sometimes... We don't always realise that we have this seal of the Holy Spirit on our lives. That's why we look back and see, well, how has God been transforming us? We look at the evidence, much like we can't see the wind, but we see the branches move in the trees. Well, if we look back and we see that the seal of the Holy Spirit that is bringing us in love and joy and peace and faithfulness and goodness and self-control, all the virtues of God's Holy Spirit... As we see these come to fruition, then we can be sure that God's Holy Spirit is working in our lives. So we've seen how God includes us. We've seen how God unifies us. And thirdly and finally, we're going to see how God deserves the glory of our praise. Because as one unified community, God redeems us in Christ. In verse 14, Paul um, switches from you to speak of our inheritance And by this, he means a common inheritance belonging to both Jew and Gentile believers in Christ. As believers in Jesus, they are both now all God's adopted children and members of one family. Now, an inheritance is something that we receive at the death of a loved one. So when Jesus died, Jew and Gentile together inherited access to the same intimate relationship with God the Father that Jesus enjoyed. That is what his death on the cross did for us. But unlike some wills here on earth where the riches can be unevenly spread and they cause a bit of family division, the inheritance that believers enjoy in Christ is shared equally amongst God's family. But in addition, Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He defeated death and rose from the grave to eternal life. And this too is part of our promised inheritance, according to the the book of Revelation. Our inheritance is not earthly wealth, but it's a place where heaven and earth are united and made new. Where God dwells with his people and we with him. It's described as a dazzling, bejeweled place where crying and pain is no more. And the glory of God heals every hurt. It's a place lit up by Jesus, a place of love, of peace, and eternal happiness. But all this can look so contrary to what we see in the world. Particularly following incidents such as the earthquake in Nepal, such an inheritance can sound, well, is it just a bit too good to be true? Well, I'm sure the Ephesian believers who were young in Christ were thinking much the same thing. Paul wants to reassure the Ephesian church that their inheritance is certain. And that's why he describes the Holy Spirit as a present deposit which acts like a guarantee. Now we're all familiar with the word deposit. It's a down payment which pays part of the purchase price in advance. And it secures a legal claim to an item being purchased and makes the contract valid. Now, uh, the first serious deposit I paid was when I bought my first uh, car. It was a light blue Peugeot 206, and it had an extremely powerful 1.1-litre engine, and it went from 0 to 60 in all of 12 seconds, much longer if I was going uphill or if uh, indeed passengers with me. It was hard to be a, a boy racer in such a car, but it was gorgeous to me. And because I was paying for it by a higher purchase, having paid the deposit, I got to enjoy all the benefits of its speed before I'd fully paid up. And it's a bit like this with God's Holy Spirit. In giving us the Holy Spirit, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but he's actually giving us a foretaste of it now. God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us is a small taste of the future relationship we will one day enjoy with him. Believers can be certain of this because the Holy Spirit is also the guarantee of our future redemption. The Bible describes a believer's inheritance as treasures kept in heaven for us that will never fail or spoil. This means The inheritance that we're looking forward to can't be destroyed by fire, such as was the case by the terrible fire which wreaked havoc in Clandon Park House earlier this week. Nor is our inheritance subject to the whim of any political party choice we make on Thursday. A vote for Jesus means our inheritance will never be taxed. But if you think about it carefully, when Jesus... Died for the sins of the world on the cross. It wasn't us, it wasn't me that paid the purchase price to redeem humanity. It was actually Jesus. You see, it was God in Jesus who paid the purchase price to redeem humanity. And it's God who gives us the deposit of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that God is our inheritance. It works the other way around too. To the praise of God's glory, it's also we who are God's inheritance. Jesus redeemed us for God. And this means that God owns us, me and you. We have been bought at a price. So if you're a believer in Christ, you are God's possession his special portion, a person who he has carved out to bring glory to him. This means we needn't go out of here confused, searching for meanings elsewhere in material material riches or false idols or philosophies that can never love us back. Instead, you and me can join in with God's plan by listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit inside of us His spirit which compels us to go and speak to people and say, how are you doing? Are you all right? Can I pray for you? His spirit which transforms us over a period of time through love to represent his image here on earth as we become more like the image of Jesus, our Lord. This is the spirit which now calls us to unity, to one unified community here at HTC. And joins us with other churches. Because we're ordained to live differently. To love justice and mercy. So that others are attracted in. So no matter who you are. What you've done. Or where you find yourself. It's the redemption that we have in Christ. That enables us to live for him. A bit like you might have heard happened to the ringleaders of the Barley Nine. um, Andrew Chapman and Mirren Sukumarun. Well, they were singing hymns to God in praise of his glory during their execution last week. After finding Christ in prison, Andrew Chan then studied to become an ordained pastor in prison. He taught Bible classes and ran cookery courses in prison, as well as featuring in anti drug campaigns for school students. So certain were they of their redemption in Christ that they were ready to receive their final inheritance in Christ with great joy. They went straight from worshipping and praising God on earth to dying and worshipping him in heaven. How can we as a community have that assurance of faith? Well, it comes through knowing that when we trust in God, we have nothing to fear. Because God is committed to his own glory above all things. He is, by definition, utterly committed to those who trust in him, to me and you. So as members of God's family, marked by the Holy Spirit, God has has guaranteed that he'll always be there for us through thick and thin. Always working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, so that we, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, are able to bring praise and glory to him. Amen.